even as organizations push forward diversity efforts, one of the sort of common problems is organizations can recruit diverse talent, but they struggle to retain and promote diverse talent. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 96 of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of leadership and practical love. Love, the verb, not the squishy feeling. Love that is inclusive. Love that empowers others to succeed. The kind of love that is very good for business. Glad you could join us. And if you like what you hear today, please share the episode with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I want to set up my introduction to today's guest with a research reference. According to Deloitte Human Capital Trends Research, 71% of companies aspire to an inclusive and diverse culture, but only 12%, 12% have the practices in place to actually reach that goal. So what the heck is going on? Well, every day we take in so much information, we're faced with so many countless decisions where we have to, you know, like act quickly and we take on varying perspectives. There's th things coming from all angles and then we have to navigate political landscapes. And with all of that, leaders and team members are primed to rely on biased thinking called unconscious bias. Yeah, it's a thing and you should be aware of it. That's also the topic of today's episode. And who better to join us and talk about unconscious bias than someone who actually co-wrote the book on it. Pamela Fuller, the lead author, along with Mark Murphy and Ann Chow, have written The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. It's a book that, personally, I'm just going to say it, it's urgently needed right now in this day and age. Pamela serves as Franklin Covey's thought leader on inclusion and bias. She is a highly sought after consultant, speaker, and strategist. Pamela has addressed leaders across the world on unconscious bias and building an inclusive and effective culture that includes the United Nations, the US federal government, and the Fortune 500. She now joins us. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, Pamela. Thanks so much, Marcel. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting conversation and very important one, I feel. And that's really the reason when the book came across my desk, I knew I, I had to have Pamela on. And so before we dive into the book and talk about these very, um, boy, really crucially important issues, uh, we start the show with a gratitude moment. So here it is. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? You know, I have two boys, they are four and 11, and we recently relocated from Virginia to Florida. And so we live in Florida now, we have this pool. And when I wake up in the morning and we're on an acre, we've got palm trees behind us. And so when I wake up in the morning, this is my view out of my bedroom is the, our pool and our palm trees and our yard. And I just, all I've ever wanted was that kind of space for my boys. In DC, we didn't have that kind of space. 
And so I wake up sort of looking out the window and smiling about my boys like running. And they are quite often, my office doors have glass slots in them and they are quite often, I sort of look out and they're out there playing with sticks and um, jumping in the pool and, and all kinds of things. So I feel really grateful for that. That is a blessing. As uh, Absolutely. I love, I love that. I have a seven-year-old right now. He happens to be at home sick with a cold. Mm-hmm. And I was actually wondering, is he going to interrupt us at any point here during the, the broadcast? But he is just like knocked out on daddy's bed right now. So I think we're <laughs> safe. Well, the book is about unconscious bias. So let's start from the top and get some definition to shape this conversation. How would you define unconscious bias in the workplace and, and especially in the leadership level? Yeah. So for our purposes in the book, we define bias as a preference in favor of or against a thing, person, or group compared with another. And these preferences can be held by individuals or teams or organizations. And as we think specifically about leadership, the word preference is really important because we often think of bias as inherently negative. We think stereotype and prejudice, and that makes leaders defensive right? Because leaders want to say, well, like, no, I'm a good leader and I see talent and potential and I don't worry about identity and I don't have bias, right? I just make sound business decisions. But we say preference because as we think about our leadership, there is a reality to this lens that of bias thinking in our leadership. And our goal is to really add this lens of evaluation, right? This sort of additional level of complexity to leadership thinking. So just like you might evaluate risk as a leader, evaluate business impact, evaluate what this means for talent management and performance, the hope is that leaders are also asking the question, what biases do I have in this circumstance, right? Bringing the unconscious to consciousness. And how is that impacting my decision, right? And it might not be, but in many cases it is. And so getting to that really increases the effectiveness of our thinking and our leadership Mm. decision-making. Okay. So let's, let's have a a reality check here for everyone listening. Okay. It's 2021. I'm thinking unconscious bias 20 years ago is something that we, we would have dealt with. Well, (laughs) here we are in the post George Floyd era. Okay. How deeply rooted is unconscious bias right now in our workforce? I mean, when we think about the talent life cycle, sort of all the decisions that go into a person's career, how they get a job, what happens to them in the job, how assignments are delegated, how they move through the ranks or build their influence, the data shows that bias permeates every single one of those decisions, right? About all kinds of things, right? So there's correlation between a woman's body mass and her income, right? There is this sort of Malcolm Gladwell quote around, 58% of Fortune 500 leaders are over six feet tall. And what does that mean for how we identify who should have authority, right? Or who should be in power? What does it mean for women who are far less likely to be over six feet tall, right? Even as organizations push forward diversity efforts, one of the sort of common problems is organizations can recruit diverse talent, but they struggle to retain and promote diverse talent. So we still see in many organizations a huge gap between the diversity at the front line and the diversity at the leadership table. And that is a challenge, right? And we have to confront the reality that there might be limitations to how we as leaders identify talent and potential, 
right? 71% of leaders select protégés of the same race and gender. Any of us were to talk about our career trajectory, we would talk about people who believed in us, people who gave us a chance, right? And the more we look at opportunity and sort of who moves into leadership positions, we see that quite often those promotions and leadership decisions are reinforcing the status quo versus instead of really adding diversity. I want to get into this, this whole psychology of unconscious bias. Okay, you mentioned something that really struck me, body image. This is especially, I mean, it probably is a male issue, but I see as, as a really more a predominantly female issue. How does somebody view body image? How does that limit a person when I'm seeing it through my, my biased lenses? Yeah, for, for every 1% increase in a woman's body mass, at least in Western society, there's a 0.5% decrease in pain, right? Wow. And right, I mean, even there's some research on babies and, you know, I would argue all the babies are beautiful, but there is some research around sort of what we as society think is a beautiful baby. It is like a cherubic sort of chubby red-cheeked baby. And right from the beginning, these so-called pretty babies are spoken to twice as much as the so-called unpretty babies, right? So as a society, we have a beauty bias, right? And think about what that means for sort of social development, right? If you're getting spoken to twice as much, you are sort of ahead socially. And I think that that has dual impact. It is both, it both impacts sort of how we define our own possibilities, right? People have sort of self-limiting beliefs around their own body image and whether they belong in a place, right? Whether they can be uh, vocal or draw attention to themselves or whether they should make themselves small. But it also, there's a positive beauty bias that exists that impacts how people are treated, right? Whether they are questioned, whether they are invited to the, you know, after hours conversation, whether people are more friendly with them or ignore them. And all of that impacts how we define possibility, right? And can impact the career trajectory of a person and what decisions impact them positively and negatively. So what's the difference between unconscious bias and stereotyping? If I look at a, an obese male who obviously has the qualifications, at least on paper, say I'm interviewing that person or female, it doesn't matter, but my stereotype would be that that person will not be a culture fit because we're all young and we like to have fun and go out and, and we're fit, right? We want to uh, play sports together, things like that. So what's the difference between I'm stereotyping that person, obviously, or is that my own bias that I just referred to as stereotyping? I mean, it's certainly our own bias, right? In the book, we talk about the correlation between our identity and the biases that we hold. And the things that we value, we often ascribe that value to other people, right? And so if I value fitness, or if I value a slim figure, then I ascribe that to other people and I make assumptions about those other people. So we look at people who are of size, right? Or plus size people, and we might make assumptions about their work ethic, right? Are they lazy, right? Are they detail oriented? Are they smart, right? And these are all assumptions. They are not anything born in fact, right? And we certainly don't know the circumstances. I mean, someone's size is just as much genetics as it is any sure. sort of behavior, sure. right? 
And so we don't know the circumstances that lead to someone being of size. As someone who takes up a little bit more space in the world, right? I very proudly identify as a runner. I'm not super fast, <laughs> but I go out there every day and I do it because it clears my head and it brings me joy, right? And so I think it's really important that we don't, that we think about the ways in which we ascribe value and how much of that ascription of value is assumption and how much of it is actual fact. Like what evidence do we have that this plus size person is lazy? Mm -hmm. Quite often we don't, right? Yeah, right. I'm obviously talking to listeners can't see you, but uh, we have a video here. You, you're a woman of color. So I want to ask you, what personal story do you have where you were faced with having to overcome someone else's bias, unconscious? One of the models we talk about in the book, it's a bit of a speedometer around performance, right? And that when we all feel respected, included, and valued, we are in what we call the high performance zone. Essentially, we are in an environment where the conditions exist for us to perform at our best. And then we talk about the limiting zone, right? Where we might feel ignored or tolerated or marginalized or diminished, right? And the conditions are not such that we can perform at our best. We're limited or inhibited in some way. And I think there is a reality and it's certainly something that I've experienced where your onlyness in a circumstance can feel limiting. So if you are the only Black person in a room, if you are the only woman in a room, if you are the only parent in a room, it can be very much a signal that you don't belong in that space. And so I think across my career, I have always been sensitive to that onlyness and have had to manage what that means about whether I believe I belong in a space, right? Whether that becomes self-limiting for me. There's an interesting data point that when women make up 17% of the room, men believe that they are half. And when women make up 33% of the room, men believe that they are the overwhelming majority. And so I think there's this sense that those of us who are part of a marginalized group, we feel othered more than the majority feels our otherness. Uh, uh, that has, and, and that's certainly something I've contended with. I think I've also contended with, I am told that I am articulate several times a week, right? And inherent in this phrasing that I am articulate is the assumption that I wouldn't be, right? That it's shocking. I mean, you wouldn't meet, I'm, a, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm a global sales leader and currently the top sales leader at Franklin Covey. And if I were white, people would not tell me that I was articulate because they would assume that to be all right. those things, you need to be articulate, right? But there is always this sort of sense of surprise, like Pamela, you are so articulate, right? And that underlying assumption that I would be anything less than articulate based on my resume is certainly something I've dealt with. I've also had people assume that I come from a disadvantaged background, uh, right? I've, I've had a colleague tell me, and I share this in the book, this example. So I had a former colleague who was being, he was let go based on performance issues and being unable to meet his um, sales commitments. And in his like parting conversation with me, he expressed some sort of like pity for me in my circumstance. I am doing well in my sales goal. I still have my job, but he said, you know, it's amazing all that you've been able to accomplish based on everything that you've been through and how hard your life has been. 
And I was, this man didn't know me. Like he didn't actually know my, my circumstances, but I think I have experienced quite a bit in my career that people assume I'm coming from a deficit. I've had a blessed life. I've had a, actually a very positive life. I'm first generation American. My parents worked really hard to be able to give me things and were very intentional about what schools I went to and what opportunities I had and how we traveled, right? And so I think this assumption that I come from disadvantaged beginnings and also that I potentially don't have the qualifications or pedigree to be in a space is something that I've quite frequently contended with. Thank you for that. And that leads me to ask you a question about, because you've obviously been promoting yourself into really successful and high places. And I want to talk about unconscious bias within the higher ranks and talk about some data points because I know it does not reflect the percentages of our population with ethnicities, but how deeply rooted are we talking about is unconscious bias in promoting leaders up the ranks? Well, there is. I mean, I did mention the data point. 71% of leaders select protégés of the same race and gender. And every organization is saying they need to diversify their leadership ranks. So you have basically 100% white executive teams and their succession plan is a full reflection of themselves, right? And the people that they are sort of coaching and mentoring and sponsoring. There's also interesting data about the distinction between mentorship and sponsorship, Women and people of color are historically over-mentored, under-sponsored. There is no risk and no career progression that naturally happens through mentorship. I mean, if I mentor someone, I sort of give them my two cents and they can take it or leave it. And I've done my good deed for the day. If I sponsor someone, I am tying my career to theirs, right? I am saying that based on all of the success that I've had professionally, I'm making a bet that Marcel can receive this promotion and is the best person to do this. And so I tie my outcomes to that person's outcomes. I take on some risk. And women and people of color are not sponsored. And ultimately, those are the things that move us up through the leadership ranks, right? Currently, when we look at CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, we see that there's you know less than 10%. It's something like 5% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are Black. And we recently just saw... In addition to those ranks, the COO of Starbucks, a Black woman, was promoted to be the CEO or was appointed CEO of Walgreens. And in the same week, we saw Ken Frazier, who's a Black CEO, retire, right? So every time we make some gains in that like one or two people, we lose someone as well. And that's 2% when you look at Black people, at least in the United States, they make up 12 to 14% of the population. And so the goal is that we see parity, that we look at society and we see parity reflected in the leadership ranks. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've mentioned a few examples of unconscious bias, but I want to make sure that we haven't missed some really blatant ones that really fly below the radar for us. I mean, what are some more bias traps that we should be aware of? Well, If we look at data, right, so people with non-Western names in Western countries have to submit 30% more resumes to get the same result. So does our name have anything to do with our ability to do a job? It's a blatant assumption around difficulty and and whether, whether me being able to say someone's name is a reflection of whether they should be hired. When we feel overwhelmed, when we have high emotion about a circumstance, 
And when we feel under duress, like we need to act quickly, we throw out information that could be useful and lean into assumption or things that might be in our own self-interest, right? We see this in education as we think about learning disabilities. And these education numbers then define possibilities as we look at organizational possibilities and what leadership looks like, right? So a small percentage of students have learning disabilities, right? I think it's something like 10%. And yet students with learning disabilities make up a disproportionate amount of students in juvenile detention, right? And it is that we often take any sort of difference and penalize that difference, right? We say that this is inconvenient for me and so I'm gonna penalize it versus really addressing the reality that people learn differently. Mm. You know, it's funny, that speaks to uh, an article I wrote on Inc. not too long ago, where I found that uh, so many students and the recent grads that are people of color are especially African-Americans. They are whitening their resumes. Uh, Speak to that, if you could. So you will see that many people have sort of the name that they go by, and then they have a name that they'll put on their resume. So they might have a more colloquial or more ethnic name, but on their resume, it'll say Ronald. It'll say Karen, right? It'll say Susan. And they'll say, I go by that at work, right? For that purpose, because they know that there are assumptions made about their name when they do have an ethnic name. My husband and I actually debated this quite a bit because my husband is the second And so our first son is the third, and his name is very generic, Michael James Fuller III. And when we had our second son, my whole life, my family's from the Dominican Republic, but my name is Pamela, and my maiden name in English is German. So in Spanish, it's German, but in English, it's German. So I always had this generic name, and no one ever knew that I was Latina, right? And I always thought, I'm going to marry someone with a super Spanish name. Like, I'm going to marry a Rodriguez, Rivera. Like, I'm going to have this super Latino name. It's going to be very clear, right, that I'm Latin. But then I fall in love with this man whose last name is Fuller, and it sort of is what it is. So we're pregnant with our second baby. And I'm like, this is my moment. Like, I'm going to name this baby Guillermo or Javier or like Jose. Like, just something that is very clear so everybody knows. And my husband actually brought up this data and he was like, we can't do that because we have Michael and we're like setting up our two boys to have different outcomes if he has this super ethnic name. Wow. And it was really interesting that it it was an interesting debate and conversation. So we landed on Maximo, which is in Spanish, but can be shortened to Max and he'd be Max Fuller, which is fairly generic. Uh. It was an interesting, it was a funny, funny, not funny debate, if you will. (laughs) Right. But a good story. I love it. Okay. So Pamela, companies big and small are, are being pushed to, and it's been a trend for years now to become more diverse and inclusive. And I feel some of it is, is disingenuous, you know, more cliche than actual practice. And people are just merely ch- ticking off the, the HR boxes to stay compliant, but they're not really transforming the organization to become high performing and, and inclusive. So I want you to speak to the CEO or anyone up in the C-suite, okay, about having a diverse leadership team and how that can benefit an organization. So hang tight, everyone. Pamela and I are going to unpack this very important topic after a quick break. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. 
You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind Love in Action? Well, the simple answer? We need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out. I'm taking calls right now. And I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on virtual training. Okay, we're back. So, I get to interview lots of leaders of some great companies around the country and the world, and I like to poke around their websites to get a feel for how diverse their leadership teams are, and many are not. So why should they be, and what are the visible benefits we will see from a more diverse leadership team? So we know that organizations that are diverse and inclusive have better results. We know that when organizations have a diverse C-suite and a diverse board of directors, they post better financial results, right? It is everything we know about innovation and that if all of us sit around the table and we have exactly the same experience, we all solve problems in the same exact way. And it inhibits innovation, right? Mm. And so I think that leaders need to think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging as a change initiative. So when you think about change management and organizational change and restructuring, these are all very significant things. And then to your point, we look at, well, we need to be diverse and equitable and inclusive and ensure we have a sense of belonging and we don't treat it as a change, right? We actually just say, well, we'll do these couple of things and we'll make sure that there's diversity on our website and we'll ensure that we're you know, advertising in some different places and we'll have some employee resource groups and call it a day, right? But it is actually a change management initiative. And just like you would bring in sort of experts to do any other sort of restructuring or change management initiative, it is important that we have, that you have a robust and sort of diverse set of perspectives around the table. And the reality is that anything that you do below the leadership team, and when you look at your website, the people whose pictures are on the website, right, is the leadership team. And so you have to ask yourself the question, if we are doing everything we can to be a diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization, but our leadership team still does not reflect diversity, are we doing everything we can? And millennials and Gen Z look at organizational diversity as a component of whether they will work at an organization, right? More and more society is holding organizations accountable, right? They're voting with their dollars and they're voting with their feet around what sort of organizations they should support based on how that organization is really living what it says about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So I feel like we're at the point where 
if your executive team does not reflect diversity, it is actually a risk for you, right? It is a high risk for you because it is evidence that you are not quite invested in the change, right? Not willing to do everything possible to get to yeah. change. Yep, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, let's, let's get into solution <laughs> and talk about practical things shifting our own minds. So what can we as leaders do to fight this thing off called unconscious bias? What are strategies for that? So in the book, we talk a a lot about strategy, right? It is strategy driven in terms of things people should try. So I've mentioned these bias traps, these circumstances where we find ourselves more susceptible to bias thinking. And as a leader, it's important to sort of create space between stimulus and response. And so we talk a lot about mindfulness and self-awareness and how we build that. Another strategy is thinking about your own identity, right? And what that means for how you ascribe value. It's a way for us to bring the unconscious to consciousness. And finally, one of the sort of strongest proven strategies that I've experienced and that I coach leaders on is how we are very intentionally building connection, particularly across difference. So if you look at your network, Every leader has a go-to cadre of people, right? They go to a certain bit of people who they know they can rely on to sort of solve big problems or work on new things. And the reality is that becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy or confirmation bias around the talent and potential of those people. Because over the course of their career, your go-to people, they actually have exponentially more access to you, right? And exponentially more access into the strategy of the business and how you think and how to achieve results, right? And over time, that means that they are then promoted through the ranks. And we know that our go-to people are often quite similar to us. So I walk leaders through a network audit where I ask them to look at their network and really evaluate similarity and difference across that network and ask themselves the question, where is their opportunity, right? It's not to say throw out your current network, but how can you expand that network? Where's their opportunity for you to expand that network, expand your succession plan, expand who you're mentoring and sponsorship, expand your involvement. You know, even looking at the hierarchies in organization, you work with the people who report directly to you. Do you have any sort of exposure with the people who report to them, right? Or do you have any exposure to the front line? Because all of that will expand your view of the business, right? And diversify your perspective and add this level of nuance or complexity to your thinking. Can you drill down just a little bit deeper on the curiosity and empathy part of the equation? I mean, how do we actually do that? Yeah, so we talk about in the book, curiosity and empathy as two sides of the same coin right? Some of us are naturally more empathic. We feel other people's feelings and we have natural empathy when we see similarity. That's sort of part of the hardwiring of the brain. And so empathy is the sort of interpersonal art of connection. It is the more natural sort of vibration of connection that we feel with people. Now, curiosity, and some of us are naturally more curious, right? We ask critical questions. We listen really intently to the responses. We are very investigative in how we relate to other people and how we understand. And so curiosity is really the intellectual pursuit of connection. And with people, what we find is when you don't have sort of natural empathy, right? When you don't have this natural vibration of connection, If you use the skills of curiosity, if you ask critical questions and really listen to the responses, 
over time, you will grow empathy for that circumstance, right? You'll grow some additional understanding and connection in that circumstance. And so when we think about, for example, if, if you were to think about two people you work with or two people who report to you as a leader, one of them is your high performer, your go-to reliable, solid performer. The other one, you don't really understand sort of their perspective. You think of them as overly negative and you try to avoid having to interact with them. Now, if you think about how you might plan a conversation with both of these people, right? With the person who is your go-to person, how long is that conversation? It's typically a lot longer than with this other person. And with the person who's your go-to person, how does that conversation start? Do you share an anecdote about something your kids just did? Do you talk about something you both watched on TV? Do you have like 15 minutes of sort of niceties and jokes versus how you might engage with the person who you don't like very much, right? Where it's, you just pass them, right? You, you call them, you say, Marcel, I need these six things done. Please get that to me next week. Have a great day, right? And if we behaved the way we behave with the high performer, with this person who we've deemed low performing, what would we see differently? Right. And so I ask leaders to do this. And I've had leaders come back with such meaningful insights from those conversations. They will often share some profound thing they didn't know about the person. And they will have learned in a 15 minute sort of connecting conversation more than they had learned about that person in six years of working with them. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we take that opportunity to sort of expand opportunity or expand how we look at connection or who we are connecting with it can often sort of flip on its head assumptions that existed previously. Wow. Okay. One last check before we um, go into some traditional podcast questions, but I, I just want to make sure that we are really hitting this right between the eyes. Okay. For us, for me, anyone in the leadership role, what is that one basic thing that we can check in with ourselves to identify, holy cow, I, yes, uh, how do I identify bias in ourselves? How do we know it is happening right now? So I often use in my head sort of a thought experiment. It's a T-chart. And on one side of the T-chart is facts. And then the other side of the T-chart is feelings. And so as you're engaging with people and you think, I don't like this person, right? Or I disagree with this, or they are not competent. The thing you can do in your head is think about what evidence you have to that statement. And of that evidence, what is a fact and what is a feeling? And that will often sort of hijack for us this perception of bias, right? Because we'll find that when we have those strong emotions or instincts, they are quite often how we feel. And we don't actually have evidence to that effect. Wow. That's so powerful because you're really challenging your whole a whole set of assumptions and maybe even a, a value system, that a false belief system that you were raised with. So this is very powerful. And, and I would wager it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a flip of the switch. Perhaps it, it will take uh, a few seasons of, of building your self-awareness to get to that stage. Yeah, I think self-awareness is one of those terms that is like oversaid, under-practiced. Mm -hmm. And it may be that you can't do that in the moment, but it, you spend 10 minutes at the end of a day sort of reflecting on the day you've had and 
writing down a T-chart and some observations and you realize it after the fact, right? And then you can go back the next day and sort of correct what you've realized or address it again or try, try differently, right? So there's a different pattern of practice for each of us, but I think it is this question of, are you practicing self-awareness and how? Yep, yep. Such a powerful conversation. As we wind down, Pamela, I want to make the link between leadership and practical love and care. Of course, I already mentioned in my introduction, love in this case being an action verb, not a feeling that will create value, engage the hearts and minds of people and lead to high performance. So in this day and age, how does a leader love well day in and day out? You know, I think as a leader, if you think about your people, you should be able to answer several questions about your people, right? You should be able to say where they see themselves in the future, not where you see them, not what would be convenient for the business, but where do they see themselves? You should be able to say what they're most excited about, right? What are they most excited about at the moment, personally or professionally? And you should be able to identify what they're most worried about, right? What they're most concerned about or what their current struggle is or what skills they'd like to build. And I think knowing these things about people across both their personal and professional lives is how you show them you care about them, right? And how you show them that you love them. Because it also means that every time you connect with them, you can ask about one of those things. It means you can proactively send them something that might help them with the thing they're worried about or with the skill they're trying to build. And so I think love is very much about knowing people. And when you spend even five minutes checking in with them on these things, they feel that you care for them, right? And they feel your love in action. Mm, I love it. We'll leave it just like that. So we end our episode with two questions. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? So there's sort of two things that are really tugging at my heart. So the New York Times recently released, you know, they have this uh, primal scream phone line and they have all these working mothers who are going on 12 months of having their kids at home, virtual schooling, or if you have very small children, just trying to have them entertained and you're also working. And this series that the New York Times released was all about the ways in which organizations need to get better at supporting working parents and working women in particular. And I do feel that in March of 2020, there was like an initial, I don't know, eight weeks of like extreme empathy where it was like, you know, get your family situated. No worries. Like everything will be here when you get back kind of thing and make the meetings you can make. And, and then after eight weeks, it was like, okay, you know, work again, like start working, but nothing changed about what was happening at home. And so I guess one of the things that's sort of heavy on my heart is how do we love mothers right now? How do we love working mothers and working parents more broadly? And there's lots of single parents, moms and dads who are trying to juggle, you know, you don't even have another person to help you with the kids, but you, you have these work commitments. And I think organizations have not done a good enough job of accommodating that. And it might be, it's everything from thinking about the hours in which people work or, you know, how much we have tolerance for your kid in the background of the call, right? All, all kinds of things. The other thing that I've been thinking quite about that's been tugging at my heart is hierarchy in organizations and the ways in which hierarchy maintains the status quo as we look at diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and it inhibits who gets a seat at the table and who feels they have voice 
And so many of the behaviors that we recommend for building an inclusive organization are really about sort of blowing up the hierarchy, right? Recognizing that a leader at the top can talk to somebody at the front line, and it's not sort of an offense to all the leaders in between. It's a way that we cultivate connection in the organization and give everyone voice. So those are the two things I've been thinking about. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And you get to close us out your way with that one thing, that final takeaway that you'd like to end with. So I think, speaking of children, that's my child screaming. Yeah, we're going to leave that. <laughs> we're not going to edit that out. <laughs> so I think many leaders fancied themselves good leaders, even benevolent leaders, right? They think about all the ways that they've helped people across their career, all the ways that they've created jobs and moved the organization forward. And fewer leaders think of themselves as inclusive leaders. And I feel so strongly that if you are not proactively inclusive, if you don't add this lens to your thinking and are pushing against some of your own assumptions, then you cannot be a great leader because some people intentionally or unintentionally are being left out of your leadership, right? Leadership is comprehensive. You are a leader to everyone in the organization, not just the high performers, not just the people you like, not just the people who make you comfortable, right? Or reflect your own experience. You are a leader for everyone. And so I just encourage leaders to think about the ways in which they can lead everyone. And how do they practice that leadership every single day to get fluent in this new way of thinking about their own leadership? I love it. It was a takeaway and a mic drop moment rolled into one. So thank you for that. And finally, Pamela, if people want to get a hold of you, connect with you and just find out more about you, where can they go? Yeah, so people can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. I am accepting all requests. And also, if you go to franklincovey.com, you can learn more about our work in unconscious bias and inclusion, our work with leaders, our book, my co-authors and I's profiles, and, and some additional resources in this space. I'll make sure I have Pamela's contact info in my show notes. Pamela, it's been an honor, and uh, you are doing incredibly important work, and we thank you. We are better for it. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Marcel, and I hope your little one feels better soon. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. Stick around for my three action steps, three things that you can start doing today based on this episode and Pamela's book, which again is called Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. Go grab your copy. It is a page turner. I'll be right back. Well, that was an eye-opening conversation. Whew. So here are my three action steps to hopefully raise your self-awareness. Now, I'm going to draw from the part of the conversation where we talked about recognizing these, these bias traps that you know fly below the radar and we're not even aware of it. So I'm going to draw from Pamela's book, and I'm going to ask you to make this happen, be intentional about it, to create some change here, and let's make our workplaces better. So here's step number one for you, okay? I'm going to ask you to recognize and break away from your in-group bias. This is our tendency to favor people we like or, you know, those who are like us. And we do that while excluding those who are different. So 
let's say you're putting together a team. In-group bias means that I'll unconsciously pick people who act like me and look like me and, and agree with me. So there's another introvert on the team like me, so I pick them. There's another woman on the team that's like me if I'm a woman, and so I pick her. It's just within our comfort zone to do that, to want to be around people that are just like us. But it doesn't lead to the best results because we know, according to the research, that the most diverse teams are the ones that will always outperform others. Step number two, I'm going to ask you to stop the negativity bias. So here's an example so you know how to raise your awareness. Okay, let's say you work with someone who is quite different than you. Maybe they come from a different country or speak with an accent, or maybe they lack the same experience that you have. Perhaps they're younger, or maybe they come from a different department and, and they don't interface with you cross-functionally. So that person will do really good work and they have really good reputation. So you have no problems with her. Then one day she makes a costly mistake. Here's how negativity bias works. It would be present if you held on to that one mistake to the exclusion of all of that person's successes. We might even extend it to that person's identity. Like, oh, that would have never happened if she was older or more experienced or worked in my department or, you know, fill in the blank. Lastly, your third step that I want you to put into play here is to recognize and stop confirmation bias. This is the idea that we, we tend to seek information that only supports our existing beliefs. Now, don't just think about this for politics, okay? That's the obvious one, right? But think about workplace application here. What are you hanging on to that you feel is a good idea for, you know, maybe a strategy or a new implementation of a, a technology that in other people's eyes may not be the best solution? And they have different facts and data than, than you do that prove otherwise, but you're still hanging on to this belief or idea that your way is the right way. So that would be confirmation bias. So I'm going to ask you to chew on those three and hopefully you'll begin to apply that to create some change and make the workplace better. My special thanks to Pamela Fuller for all kinds of aha moments. I had a few today. I hope that you did too. And thank you for joining us, Loving Action Nation. If you want to comment on this episode, you can do so at hashtag Love in Action podcast. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, I'd love to chat with you. Find me on my website, marcelschwantes.com or on LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the love in action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.